Uh, as we get started, because it's been about um, a couple of weeks since we've gotten together, I want to do a quick review of Hebrews with you, just to, to bring you back up, to remind you of Melchizedek, uh, that, that this order of priesthood. Remember, the uh, Hebrew people were really struggling, and they were struggling because they were being persecuted from Romans, and they were also being uh, ostracized by the Jews. And the, the Jewish people who were still holding to the sacrificial system, it was about 70 years after, about 40 years after the crucifixion of Christ, but about 70 AD, and when this letter was written. And the, the, the author wrote it to call people to be all in with Jesus. And by that, I don't mean all in and perfectly living your lives. It means that you're all in in the Jesus boat. And remember, there were three warnings that we've already covered in this letter to the Hebrew people. First, the warning in chapter 2 that says, um, don't ignore this message that we've given to you, that Jesus is Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one that was promised. And in chapter 2, he says, don't, don't walk away and drift away from this message, because if you do, you're going to become hardened. Uh, and, and if you become hardened, you're not going to come back. In fact, in chapter 3, he warns them, uh, don't harden their hearts like they did in the wilderness. And he quotes Psalm 95. And then in chapter 5, 11 through 6, 12, he tells them really, he says, don't waver. Be all in. He really challenges them with a third warning. And then he goes into who Melchizedek is to explain that Jesus is the priest and he's a king. And there's only been one other guy and one prophesied guy who was like that, and that was Melchizedek and the Messiah. So he is fulfilling that. And so as he uh, as he's sharing those things about Melchizedek, he's telling them that Jesus and Melchizedek was priest and king. Uh, they were divinely appointed. Uh, hold on just a second. Somebody's coming on who uh, keeps popping in, and I don't know who it is. All right. Uh, Okay, um, so somebody, let me, I don't know who this is. Whoever's uh, 616-6393, um, all right, there you go, you're muted now. All right, so Melchizedek is the, um, the priest and king, and Jesus was a priest and king. They were both divinely appointed. They were greater than Abraham. They were kings of righteousness. We saw all this in chapter 7. And then at the middle of chapter 7, we saw the thing that Jesus brings was this unrestricted access to God. You know, the Pope just said yesterday, <laughs> he said, you know, if you can't get out, just, just confess directly to God. Well, we've been able to do that since Jesus came. And um, I just think, it, I thought it was interesting that the Pope told everybody, hey, you don't, you don't have to go through a priest, just go directly to God because of this thing, because Jesus is our priest. And, and so this 24-7 access to God is what he brought when Jesus came. He gave us eternal forgiveness, eternal life. He gave us clear conscience and this 24-7 access to God that I think a lot of times we take for granted. And uh, last week, or I'm sorry, two weeks ago when we got together, we, um, we looked at why this new covenant was better. We saw that we have a better priest. Why? Because he was heavenly rather than earthly. And he was, um, 
we saw Psalm 110 quoted 11 times in the New Testament. And what that is, that's a messianic psalm that says he's, he's a king and he's a priest. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. And then we saw we had a better model of worship. He used the term copy, shadow, and pattern. And as he did that, he was saying that everything in the Old Testament pointed toward Jesus. Everything, all this, the, the, the laws. And we're going to look at today even uh, when we look at this new covenant, what it offers us today, that, that all that stuff was pointing to Jesus. It was never meant to last. And if you remember last time, for those of you who may not have been there, we, we looked at how the tabernacle was written. Remember when God gave Moses that instruction, we talked about the linen wall that was on the outside. For those who went to Israel with us this past uh, trip, um, or I'm sorry, um, I didn't, we didn't get to go there. I, when I went with Ray Vanderlaan, we saw a tabernacle a replica, and the linen wall represented a wall of cleanliness. It separated God from people because God was holy and people weren't. And then we saw that there was a gate that went through that. There was only one person could go through that gate. And then there, we saw the altar, the sacrifice. That was the, that was the way, you, the, all this was showing a way to approach God. And so you go through the wall, through the gate, through the blood sacrifice, a way of blood. And then there was this big basin and it was a way of cleanliness. And then we saw the table of showbread, which was the way of provision. God has to provide a way for us to get to him. Then there was a candelabra, which was the light. It illuminates the way to God. It illuminates the truth. And then we saw the Holy of Holies. In there was the Ark of the Covenant, which had the mercy seat on it. And in that Ark of the Covenant was a copy of the covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. It was a, a staff and it was a jar of God's manna, his bread. And so what that signified was the covenant, it signified God's leadership, and it signified God's provision. And the priest would bring that blood in and sprinkle it over that mercy seat, symbolizing the, the atoning of our rebellion against God's covenant, against his leadership, and against his provision. And then we saw how in the Gospel of John, the writer John laid that out. In the first chapter, he says through um, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. It was the altar, the way of blood. Then there was the wash basin or the, the way of cleanliness in chapter three where Jesus is baptized. And then in chapter six, we see the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. It was the way of provision. And then in chapter eight, he says, I'm the light of the world. It's the illumination where he illuminates the truth. And then John 14, he just spells it out. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in John 19, we see the sprinkled blood on the mercy seat where Jesus is crucified. And so that was a, a pointing to this new covenant that is spoken about in this passage today. And in, in chapter 8, we're going to just focus in on 8 8 through 13. But I want to remind you that we talked about covenants. For those who weren't here last time, there was a suzerain covenant, that's S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N, and a suzerain covenant was a political covenant between people of unequal value. And the Hittites used it, that, that whole ancient civilization 
used it back in Abraham's time and, and pre-Christ. They used these, and they usually contained six elements. It had a, a, a preamble where the king would say, I am so-and-so, who whatever his name is, he would say, I am the king, and this is what I've done. He would give a historical prologue of how great he was. And then you would see stipulations and a provision for the people to bring a gift. And then there would be... Um, a list of all the witnesses or the people that were actually witnessing the king making this covenant with the people. And then there were the cursing and the blessing formula. And we see all that in the book of Deuteronomy with the Mosaic covenant. We're going to get into some of that today, but this was a two-way covenant. And the two-way covenant was, I do this and you do that. In other words, by me doing this, I, I'm obligating you to do that. Or, or the king, he's saying, if you do this, then I will do that. Doesn't really obligate him, but he's just saying he will. And because he's the king, he could enforce that. Well, the new covenant that we're going to study today is a one-way covenant. It says, be blessed, then do that instead of the opposite. The two-way says, do this and be blessed. And we, we looked at that last time. And, and I told you there were, as we look back, there was an Adamic covenant with Adam. He had one thing to do, and that was not eat of the tree. And then there was the Abrahamic covenant we looked at in Genesis chapter 12, where he says, I'm going to do this with you, Abraham. I'm going to make you a great people, and I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to bless all the world through you. And then there was the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant, basically God gave the commandments, the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law. He, he, they were all wrapped in together there. But the moral law was different from the ceremonial law and the, um, the, the civil law in that the moral law reflected the character of God. And I think we miss out on that sometimes because God did away with the ceremonial law and the... Um, and also the civil law being tied into his rule, we have dismissed the moral law saying, well, you know what? We live under grace, so the moral law is not that important to us anymore. And in fact, you've got a whole movement of young people growing up today who basically say, God did everything, so I don't have to do anything. And that was not, the moral law was not the old covenant. And I think that's where a lot of people today make a mistake. The old, the old covenant contained the moral law, but the moral law was not the old covenant. And that's a big distinction that we need to make. And as we look at this passage today, what I want to, uh, to, to show you is that this new covenant that we have that he's, he's quoting, the writer is from Jeremiah 31, is going to offer us a gift it's, he's given us three things that we have access to because of this new covenant. The first is God's grace. I mean, this is not just grace like you, John Heinzel, giving me grace because I, I, I offend you. This is grace from the creator. This is grace from the creator of the universe who's offering us grace. You know, and you've probably heard the adage, God's riches at Christ's expense or the acronym that's what grace is. God is giving us something we don't deserve, which is a relationship with him not based on us. It's not based on anything we do. And for us in America, we have a really hard time with that. 
I mean, we, we, we believe we have to pull ourselves up by the bootstrap. We have to do everything we can to earn God's favor. And so he gives us access to God's grace. He's given us this gift. And uh, we're going to see that. The second thing is God's power. And I, I feel like, especially during a time like this, like we're dealing with a coronavirus, that we can't forget that we have access to God's power, which is the resources that provide everything. So especially for you guys who are struggling maybe financially or you think about, you know, what are you going to do? God is not surprised by any of this. He's not surprised. Uh, if, if, if Don't believe that even if he changes what you do where you're employed or he changes your business plan, that he doesn't have the resources to continue doing something. He just may be moving us to a time where we do things a little differently, i.e., look at how we're doing SWAT today. <laughs> we're doing SWAT via computer. I, if you had, I would have never believed we would be doing this. And right now we have like 50 people joining us online going through this. And so we're just, he's taking us through a different place where he's going to deploy his kingdom priest to use them differently. But he's got the power to change anything at any time. And so we're going to see that in this text. And then third, which is different from God's grace and his power, but because of his grace and his power, we see a gift of his mercy. And man, that is such a good gift because what he's telling these people in Hebrews is the need for the priesthood, the need for the sanctuary, the need for the old sacrificial system is gone. In fact, he's telling them, he didn't say to them it's gone. He said it's becoming obsolete and it was about to be gone because remember, it was just not a year or so later, the temple was gone. The Romans came in and they completely destroyed the temple where they had to go every year. And so as we look at this text, I want you to keep in, line, uh, in mind those things. And we're going to look at, um, really, I want to focus in on the law because without the law, we wouldn't know what sin was, Paul said. And I want to talk a little bit about the law is good. It doesn't go away. And some of us may have mistakenly been taught that the law has no relevance in our life anymore. And it does. It's just got a different relevance. That's all. And so let's read the text in chapter eight. I want to read it for you. You can follow along in your Bible. And if you're listening through the phone, you can just listen. Um, but I'm going to, or to the podcast, I want to read from chapter eight, verses eight. I'll start with verse seven. I want to go back to verse seven through uh, the end of the chapter. So it says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenants that I made with their, or the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor 
and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so he's saying that this covenant is going away. And as he, as he lays this out, the first thing he brings out in verses 8 and 9 is he's saying, I'm going to give you something new. It's not going to be this two-way covenant. It's not like the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was never designed to bring redemption. It was always designed to restrain God's people. It was a two-way covenant. This covenant, the one he's quoting for, and by the way, in your Bible, if you look when he goes into this is the covenant I will make, it it, it kind of sometimes put that in parentheses or it makes it a little different print referring to an Old Testament quote. That's a direct quote from Jeremiah 31. And so what he's saying is this new covenant that God promised back in Jeremiah 31 is going to be a gift of God's grace to you. And notice what he says in verse 8. He says, I will establish a new covenant. Verse 10, I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. Verse 10, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their hearts. Verse 10, I will be their God. Verse 12, I will. Do you notice it doesn't say you have to <laughs> in any of those? It doesn't say you do this other than respond to what he's going to do. Five times he makes these I will statements. So it's all on God. And it reminds me, we covered this a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 15. And just a quick reminder, when God made the Abrahamic covenant, remember he put Abraham to sleep. And he, and he this was a one-way covenant with Abraham. It wasn't a two-way he put it, he, remember he told Abraham, Abraham goes, God, how am I going to know that you're going to do all this stuff? And in other words, are we going to have a covenant? Because that's what they did. And God said, okay, uh, Abraham, go get five animals and cut them open and let the blood run down in the blood channel. We're going to do a blood covenant. You're going to walk the blood path. And that terrified Abraham. You know why? Because he, he didn't want to make this kind of blood covenant with God because he, he knew he couldn't keep it. And that's the problem with the Mosaic Covenant. We can't keep it. To be in relationship with God from the Mosaic Covenant, we would have to keep it perfectly and not violate any of God's moral law. And we can't do that, guys. You know that. You know we can't do that. Paul talks about how we can't do that. The greatest people in the Bible that God used couldn't do that. Look at all God's people that had a heart for him that couldn't do it. And so he takes that out. But what I want to do is talk a little bit about the law uh, because the old covenant contained the law, but it was not equal to the law. And I really believe this is an area that we, we've kind of, we've, we've allowed, I don't know, this whole grace thing. We all understand grace. Well, I mean, we may not live like we understand it, but we've certainly been taught about it. And I think we focus so much on God's grace that we forget that the law is what brings grace into our life. If we didn't know the law, we wouldn't even realize we needed grace. But it's because of the law uh, and, and, and the law reflecting God's nature 
by the way, which never changes. It says God never changes. Um, even though the social and ceremonial law passed away when Jesus came, the old moral law is still good. The Ten Commandments that we know, and Jesus summed it up like this. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor like you love yourself. Um, the old covenant became obsolete when Jesus came, but the law didn't. And I, I don't know if, if that's troublesome for you. I don't know um, uh, that, um, you know, I don't know that um, <laughs> the that if you really dwell on it too much, it's just, I've had several conversations and with these conversations, I've, uh, you know, people, I've talked to people who say, well, we don't have to keep the law anymore. You know, they just blow it off. We don't have to keep the law. And so, um, I think that it's important for us to understand the law just transitioned and what it was used for in the life of the believer. It, in fact, it didn't transition. It, it really, the primary purpose of the law prior to Jesus coming was to show us our need. It still has that primary purpose to show us our need for Jesus, but there's a secondary um, purpose for the law. Actually, it's called the third use by reform guys, is that we live out the law out of gratitude to God and to put God on display to the world to show this is what God's nature looks like. That's why I said that the, the moral law of God will never be obsolete. It's a reflection of God's nature and his nature doesn't change. Um, our obedience is what he wants and what, what we should give him that out of gratitude. And that's, you know, one of the things that I think you see a lot in other people that we don't necessarily, it's like bad breath, we don't notice it in ourselves is pride and this un. Uh, ungratefulness. I mean, like a lot of times we take things for granted and we can be ungrateful, but we don't notice it in ourselves. Sometimes we have to have people remind us of what's been done for us. And that's what he's doing in this text for the Hebrew people. We, and we can't dismiss God's law just because we see, receive his grace. And, and I think a lot of times people do it. There was a Scottish theologian who's still, I mean, he's alive today and he's a pastor. His name's Sinclair Ferguson. And he says that God designed the role of the law in a series of unique stages. Stage one was before the fall. Stage two was the law at Mount Sinai when it was given to Moses. And stage three is Christ in this new covenant. The law never changes. But the form changes and the embodiment of what that law looks like changes and how God's people administer it. And so before the fall, he says, if you go back and you look at Adam, Adam and before there was sin, Adam was a pure reflection of God's law. Why? Because he was in relationship. There was no written law in the garden that we, I mean, there was nothing recorded that we know of. He just had a relationship with Adam and he gave him one command not to eat of that tree. Adam didn't have a book. He didn't have the stone tablets. He just had the command from God not to eat. And uh, But there was no indication that God gave him this long list of things not to do. In fact, most of what he told Adam to do was positive. But what happened was when Adam um, sinned and this potential uh, of sin became a reality, it affected all of us. 
in such a way that when God wrote the law to Moses, he gave this law to restrain sin. It was to kind of hold people back and it went from a positive, all these positive things we were supposed to do to negative. You shall not, or, you know, he's, but the positive, he still was positive with what we should do with God. You know, you shall, you know, you shall have no other gods. You shall uh, not, you know, you keep the Sabbath. He says, you know, don't, um, don't um, murder, don't steal, you know, honor your mother and father. He gave everything, but there was a lot of negativity in that in the way that he gave it. Why? Because we're prone to sin. Our, our hearts have been darkened by the evil that sin brought into us, and now no one is righteous. Nobody has a good heart. So what do you do when you see people that are very moral? Because that creates a dilemma sometimes for us, this, um, this morality that we see in people because we tend to think they're good people, don't we? I mean, if we're really honest, when you see the old lady across the street who doesn't love Jesus, doesn't, could care less, but she's a moral good person. She, you know, bakes cookies for the neighbors, gives them meals when new families move in. She's, she never hears say anything bad about anybody. And you go, well, what about her? I mean, she's a good moral person. Well, if her motives are all self-motivated and not in response to God, and she's not in relationship with God, and she's just thrown her nose up at the fact that God offered his son to cover her sin. And no, you don't see her sin like God sees her sin. We see the external, but God sees the heart. He knows, and that's the thing that Jesus did. See, that's what makes Jesus so much better, guys, than the stone that Moses had the law on because Jesus not only lived out the law perfectly and displayed the law perfectly, he explained the law perfectly. Remember in Matthew 5 what he said? He said, listen, you've heard that it was said not you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say... If you lust after a woman in her heart, you've already committed adultery. You see, he took the law from an external action thing and made it what we feel on the inside and what we struggle with on the inside. So you may not see Miss Smith, and I'm just picking that name randomly. You may not see Miss Smith's sin, but it's there. It's on the inside. Miss Smith struggles like every human. There's nobody righteous, not one. And 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 so what you don't see doesn't just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there and god says if you commit one sin through the book of james he said you commit one sin it's like breaking all so you take miss smith and you take adolf hitler it's the same thing not in our minds but it is with god because one sin sent his son to the cross that is so hard for you and i to grasp and really get because we just look at things and we go, wow, well, she, you know, she just struggled with pride or she just struggled with this. Look at David and look at King Saul. What David did on the external seemed much worse than what Saul did. Saul was impatient and he burned a sacrifice when he shouldn't have. But see, the problem is not the law that was broken or the command that was broken. It was who the person who, that gave the command that you offended. That's the problem. We've broken God's holy law. You break one of his laws, 
and it's like breaking all of them. He says, that's how serious it is. There is no minor infraction of God's law. One break makes you unclean and deserving of death for eternity. Now that is so hard for us to grasp, but you know what? If you look at the history of Israel, what did they do over and over and over? They broke God's law. They, he told them, don't eat manna on the seventh day. Don't go out and get it. What'd they do? They went out and get it. Then he said, you know what? Uh, don't, on the Sabbath, I want you not to gather sticks. What do they do? They go gather sticks. They were constantly rebelling and grumbling and complaining. And they, they just took God's grace for granted. I mean, the generation that lived to come out of Egypt should have been the most grateful people in the world. But shouldn't you and I be grateful? Shouldn't you and I also uh, remember what God has done, that he has given you and me a one-way covenant? And through Jesus, you and I have a relationship with God, the Father, 24-7. And I think a lot of times we forget his grace. We forget that the law is good. We forget that the law doesn't go away. And we go, you know what? I live by grace, so I don't have to keep the law. And I mean, we, we, we just take it for granted. And in fact, if you ask a lot of people, they wouldn't even know if you ask them, well, what does God expect of his people? Oh, nothing, because we live by grace. And he does have expectations, but those expectations do not bring us into the right relationship with God. They are a result of the right relationship with God that comes from Christ. And I think that's so important for us, for us to not just to know it and to live it, but to share it with people. Because I think so few Christians really value the law of God. They see the law as negative. Stop and think for your own second, John. I mean, I'm looking at you and I can see you and Phil and Alan. Just look at your faces. So uh, don't, don't we get conditioned to think that the law is bad? I mean, I know I have by, by what I've heard preached. You know, the law was, was, you know, we don't live by the law anymore. And so I, I've, I've never really been taught that much that the law is a good thing, not just for revealing Christ to me, but also that I should be, you know, I should want to live out the law in response to what he's done. And, and, and so what is the law? If somebody asks you, well, what does it mean to, what is the law? I mean, Jesus again explained it so perfectly for us because he said, this is the law. You love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you love your neighbor as yourself. He perfectly embodied what it looks like. And, and Jesus, what the Pharisees did is they took the law and they built, you know, they, they kind of manipulated it, massaged it, and made it where they could keep it in the eyes of the people. But you know what Jesus did? He came along and he blew up their model and he blew up their hypocrisy by exposing it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 when he says, you guys fast to be seen by people. You pray to be seen by people. You give to be seen by people. Yeah, you do the right things on the external, but your internals all messed up. Chapter 5, he said, you know, you, you, you know we're not supposed to kill, but you guys hate, and hating is just as bad as killing. And so he, he, he blew up their righteousness and exposed it, and he showed them this is what it looks like 
when you put God's law on display perfectly out in the world. Now that still doesn't help you and I, does it, John? <laughs> because we can't be like Jesus, can we? we? We ultimately come back to the place where we, we can't do it and we realize we can't keep the Mosaic Covenant. Even with Jesus, we can't be like Jesus 24-7. We lose it with our wives. We lose it with our kids. We lose it with our coworkers. We lose it out with people we don't even know. And I mean, think about that guy that cuts you off in traffic. Did you perfectly display God's law to that person? No, <laughs> not in what you said to him or not even your attitude toward him. So when you, when you think about that, we had to have a way to get to him. And that was the cross. The cross took care of our inability to keep the law. And that was part of the new covenant. That was what God was saying, I believe, in Genesis 15 when he told Abraham, Abraham, don't worry. You, you rest and let me take the hit because you can't keep this law perfectly. And that's what he did on the cross in Jesus. And that's where we see Jesus' power. You know, I think that is the power. Satan thought he defeated Jesus in the cross. And in reality, that's where Jesus defeated Satan because every time we blow it, every time Satan comes to you and Phil, and he comes and he says, listen, you've blown it today with your wife. You, you say you love God, but I heard what you said. Tim Pardue, when you do what you did, you've blown it. And then that's what Satan says. And Jesus says, but you know what? The cross takes care of that. And when we come back to the cross, it humbles us. It humbles us and it changes our life. Guys, I know most of you guys, if not all of you guys who are tuning into this thing, your lives were changed by the power of the cross. It changed my life. I remember, I still remember when there was a particular sin that I was struggling with. And one night at Christian Family Chapel, Ed Edwards did a service uh, where he led a service and he had a big cross in there. And in that cross, he gave us all nails and says, whatever your sin is that you're struggling with and nail it in this cross. And I, I remember walking up that night and nailing that nail in. And, and it was just such a good visual of the power of the cross to defeat what I was struggling with. And do you know that since that night, I have not struggled with that since? That was, I don't even know how many years ago. That was, that was over, that was almost, that was over 20 years ago. It was, I can't believe how God took that away. But that's the power. Some of you guys may remember uh, a guy named Jake Prince. Jake Prince was on SWAT radio. He was a cowboy um, who lived out in Texas, had a pretty sad story. His mother was killed in a car wreck. He grew up chasing the dream of being a cowboy and a rodeo guy. And that's where he was finding his meaning in life. And then he got married and um, his wife and him had a little girl, one and a half year old girl and his wife, or, or they, they had a girl and his wife decided to leave. She just up and left him and left him with a one-and-a-half-year-old girl, and his whole world fell apart. A lot like lives are, a lot of people are going to be falling apart in the next few weeks and months as things get worse for a little while, maybe before they get better. And he was ready to take his own life. I mean, several times he shared on the radio program, you can go to SWATradio.com and just 
click on uh, search and put in Jake Prince, J-A-K-E Prince, and listen to his story. There's two of them on there. It's the one where he shares his story, not the one where he's talking about the flood in Texas, the hurricane flood. But he, he has a gun to his head three different times. And every time he went to pull the trigger, his daughter in the other room screamed this loud, piercing scream, he said. I mean, at the exact moment he went to pull the trigger and he couldn't do it. And he, he just fell on his face after the third time and trusted Christ. He had heard about Christ. He had grew up going to church, but he was never grateful. He never appreciated God's grace. He never knew the power of God. And he did that night. And that night changed his life forever. Now he, he leads FCA and Texas out there, the FCA rodeo ministry. And he shares his story with people all the world. His life's changed. His life has completely changed by the power of God. Another guy, Jeff Sipos, uh, up in uh, Pittsburgh, had him on the radio too. You heard a story maybe. He was a drug addict out in California. 25 years ago, I'm out there preaching, doing a gospel presentation. He walks the aisle and trusts Christ, embraces the power of the cross for the first time in his life. I don't see this guy for 25 years. And then I see him up in Pittsburgh a year and a half ago when I'm speaking up there. He's now the men's pastor and a shepherd and evangelist to drug addicts in the city of Pittsburgh. And, and his whole life changed by the power of his cross because that's the new covenant, guys, we have. He's talking about here. The new covenant gives us forgiveness of our sin and then it promises to write the law of God on our hearts, but it all works through the cross. As Jesus goes to the cross, he pays the penalty for our sin, and then God forgives us and regenerates us, gives us his spirit, and he writes that new law on our hearts so that we have a new mind, we have a new heart, and we have a new love for God's law. We don't dismiss God's law, we love God's law. We don't dismiss God's word. We love God's word. Just because we have Jesus and the forgiveness of sin doesn't mean we dismiss those things. John MacArthur said it this way. He said, the law in Adam's heart was loved and obeyed and delighted in until he sinned. The law in Moses' tablet was a burden and it produced guilt and shame and rebellion. The law in Christ was perfect obedience and yet, his, his, his perfection offends people. Even today, when you mention Jesus, people get offended. Why? Because he was perfect. He embodied the perfection of God's law. It's intimidating. It's indicting. You can talk about God in a general sense to a lot of people, they, but boy, when you mention Jesus, the hair on their back raises, they don't like it. Why? It brings conviction because the more sinful a culture becomes, he says, the more it hates the sinlessness of Christ. And we can't live up to that law. That's why we need Christ. We can't live like Adam lived before the fall because we're all corrupt. That's why we need the cross. That's why we need God's power. And so that's what he's saying here. He says, this is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And here it is. I will be their God. 
That, that's what he, he's saying, guys. When you have new life, he's our king. He's our leader. It's not just about the saviorhood of Jesus. This new covenant is also about his leadership. He's saying, I will be their God and they will be my people. Are we grateful? Do we know and love him and look at him as our leader? Or do we just get up every day like it's our day to do what we want, when we want, the way we want? You see, the problem is for a lot of the church in our country, I think this is a wake-up call, what we're seeing right now. God is giving a visible demonstration of what sin is in the world. Not just in our country, all over the world. People understand infection. They understand the need for uncleanliness. My gosh, people are washing their hands like never before. They're so aware of dirtiness and germs. And what it is, that's sin. We all have it. And without Christ, we are destined to go away and destined to perish. And that's why when he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. You see, we have benefited from his grace. We have benefited from his power. And we guys have benefited from his mercy. Look at what he says in verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. That means sin. I will remember their sins no more. Do you know how awesome that is? <laughs> that, that whatever you do, Alan, Dave Wilbert, whatever you do is gone. You, you don't pay a penalty for that, Amos. It's gone. It's absolutely gone. And, and you know, it, it doesn't matter how bad you blow it with those around you. It's gone because of Jesus' grace, because of his power. And, you know, I, I just think, I, I was thinking of my daughter, Rachel. Remember, uh, Rachel, my daughter, Rachel, had a heart transplant. And I can remember um, going in there and seeing, you know, she, she sent me pictures. Her and Lori held her old heart. They held their old heart. I mean, Lori and Rachel held, they took her old heart out, put the new heart in, <laughs> and they held that old heart. Now, there's no way that Rachel's ever going to want that old heart back in her because it was death. That's all it was. And it was such a visual demonstration to me. When I saw that, I go, my gosh, that's what we do. We try to take our old heart back. Whenever we don't value God's law, when we don't appreciate what He's done, it's like trying to take that old heart that Rachel had and put back in her. We don't want that. That's what Paul says. I don't want to go back to the old life. I've got a new life. I've got a new direction. And so when we blow it, what it should do and guys, this is what reinforces the new covenant that it's from God, not us, is that when we blow it, we come to the cross. That was the blood covenant God made. He made that blood covenant sacrifice. When he walked that blood path, he says, I will bear the blood when you blow it, Abraham. And he does it every time you blow it, Don. Every time you blow it, Chuck. Every time you blow it, Kent. 
whenever we blow it, every time he takes the penalty. And I don't know about you, but that makes me want to live for him more. It makes me want to obey him and to obey his law, not dismiss his law, but to really follow his law. And so as we finish this today and just go through this, the need for the priesthood is all gone away. And that's what he's trying to say. Every race, every culture can draw near to God through Jesus and the cross and the power of the cross. By calling this, this covenant new, he said the first one's obsolete. It's going away. The ritual provisions, all that stuff is going away. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to be grateful? Guys, you, you have to ask yourself, are you, are you grateful? Are, are you knowing and loving God's law? And by knowing it, I don't mean knowing it in your head. I mean, are you knowing it in your life? Are you knowing his law in the way you live your life? Are you loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? When you get up in the morning, do you say, God, today's your day. I want to serve you. I know there's a lot going on out in the world. I'm, I'm, I'm hurting right now. Financially, I'm hurting. Relationally, I'm hurting. Uh, but Lord, I'm yours. And I trust you because this is not my home. Um, you know, I like what you just said, Demetrius. You got to keep your eyes on Jesus. That's what he talks about. We're going to get to that later. You know, you got to keep your eyes fixed. What happened to Peter? Uh, <laughs> yeah, John says, so when I can't be like Jesus, how do I not just give up? Well, I think the, the way that you do that is you, you're reminded of his grace in the cross you're reminded of his power in the cross and you're reminded of his mercy in the cross. God says in his word, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he will forgive our sin. What he's saying, it's an ongoing confession. So when we're not like Jesus, we just confess to him. Yes, we're gonna blow it. Paul said in Romans 7, man, the things I don't wanna do, I do. The things I wanna do, I don't do. Golly, life is tough, he says. But in Romans 8, 1, he says, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you keep your eyes fixed on him. And, and you know, I have found that the more I come back to the cross, the more grateful I am. The more grateful I am, the more humble I am, the more humble I am, the more it makes me want to keep his law because I'm I'm just grateful. Does that make sense, guys? I, I hope it makes sense. Kent Ralston, Kent, I'm going to unmute you here, and I'm going to let you close our time out with prayer. Okay, brother?